eighth grade, I played the trombone in the school band, and the band conductor, don't clap yet, <laughs> the band conductor would periodically assign our seating by having us each play the same song, and then uh, he would assign us seats based on what he felt was our skill level was reflected. And one time, I remember going through that, and I was so sure that I had nailed it that I went home and told my mother, I'm going to be first chair. <clears throat> and much to my chagrin, the next day, when chairs were assigned, I was fourth chair out of five. Now, we all know that self-evaluation can be a pretty iffy thing, and uh, sometimes when we look at ourselves, we're going to be spot on in our evaluation, and other times we can miss it by miles. And some years ago, one of my children was wandering seriously and engaging in behavior that had uh, potential and real consequences that were physical, like harmful to him, and relational, and spiritual, and even legal. And um, I felt like a failure as a father. And it should have been a time when I really drew near to God, and I drew upon his strength. But uh, even though that eventually happened, I'd have to say through that long period of time, I felt pretty distant from God. And I figured that God must feel about me the way I felt about myself, which was like a failure. And I've noticed I've gone through life that people often do that. They often evaluate how God feels about them based on how they are feeling from day to day, even moment to moment. If we're doing great, we can figure that God must be really pleased with us. And, and if we're doing okay, we figure God, well, at least he's satisfied with what we're doing, and if we're doing wretchedly in our own estimation, then we figure that God must not think very highly of us. And if we measure how God feels about us based on how we feel about ourselves, we're likely to be wrong because self-evaluation is such an iffy thing. Now, the question I want to ask this morning is how can we know what God thinks about us so that we aren't always tossed back and forth by conflicting emotions that we might have. What does God feel about us? What does God intend toward us? In our daily lives, we all have joys and sorrows, and even when things are going well, many people have a tendency to uh, wonder what's going to happen next. You know, things are going so well, there must be something bad that's going to happen, some tragedy or difficulty or sickness or conflict that I'm going to have to face. And we just left to drift from one side to another on those different things? Or is there something that can give us some kind of certainty in that? And this short account of the baptism of Jesus by John the Baptist is an important passage. You shouldn't uh, be fooled by the fact that it's so brief. This event, the baptism of Jesus by John, is recorded in all four of the Gospels, Two of them are very brief, just a sentence or two. A third one, the Gospel of John, is more the reminiscences of John the Baptist on what happened when uh, Jesus was baptized. And this is really the longest account, the longest record of what happened at that moment, and it's, it's only recorded in less than 100 words. 
But I, I want to draw from this uh, two questions this morning, or answer two questions this morning. The first one is, what happened when Jesus was baptized? Like, what does this passage mean? What's the significance of this event? Why was it recorded here? And the second question is, what does it mean for us? Like, what difference does it make in our lives whether or not Jesus was baptized at the Jordan River? What does this mean in our daily lives? And that's where we want to camp out. But to get there, we have to start with the first question, what does the passage mean? Now, I'd like you to open your Bibles again, uh, if you would. I believe it was page 808 and uh, Matthew chapter 3. And I want to just note for you that the structure is quite simple in the passage. It breaks into two parts, before Jesus' baptism and afterwards, and then there's a hinge in between. The first part, in verses uh, 13 through 15, are John expresses his reluctance to baptize Jesus, and Jesus convinces him to do it. And the hinge is found in three words at the end of verse 15. Then he consented. And it means that then John baptized Jesus. And the second part is what happened immediately following the baptism. And that is the uh, father confirmed his pleasure in Jesus' action. Now John the Baptist is an incredibly important figure, even though he, he only appears at the very beginning of the gospel story. He's sometimes called the forerunner of Christ because he was promised in the Old Testament as a prophet who would come uh, and, and be Elijah to the people. And the people didn't know whether that meant Elijah himself was going to reappear or whether he would come in the spirit and power of Elijah and preach. And this chapter records the appearance of John on the scene and his initial preaching beginning in verse 1 and then his baptism of Jesus. And by the way, if you're not aware of this, John the Baptist was the first cousin of Jesus. And they would have grown up knowing each other and with some closeness. John's ministry had two aims according to the Old Testament. The first was preparation and the second was confession. Preparation was that he was called to prepare the hearts of the people of God for the coming of the Messiah to make ready a people prepared for the Lord, it said in the Old Testament. And the second aim went along with that, that he was to do that, uh, that preparation by calling individual believers to confession of sin and repentance. And the baptism was the sign that they were seeking to turn from their sins, acknowledge them, and they wanted to live for God. In other words, they were preparing themselves for the appearance of the Lord. And it's in that setting that Jesus appears for baptism. He comes to the Jordan River where John is baptizing people and preaching this message. And uh, John is reluctant to baptize Jesus. That's how that opens as it was read to us. He's reluctant to baptize him because apparently John could detect in Jesus no discernible reason why he would need either of the things that he came to offer. He did not seem to have personal sin of which he needed to repent, and thus he did not need to prepare his heart for the coming of the Messiah. We're not sure how clear John was on all of this, but having grown up in some proximity to Jesus, he knew he was a unique person. And Jesus answers his reluctance by saying in verse 15, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. 
like the whole passage, that's a, that's a few words packed with significance. And it, it implies that John's objection is valid in principle. Jesus did not need baptism. But he says, let it be so now. In other words, John, permit this to happen under the present circumstances, at the present time. Like some higher purpose is being met by Jesus coming for baptism. He's going to fulfill all righteousness. That seems to mean some, something indicated under the Old Covenant or in the Old Testament that Jesus needed to do. And so he says that to John, and, and uh, John consents and baptizes him. But the higher purpose, apparently, that Jesus was coming to meet is that it was necessary from the Old Testament for him, if he was the Messiah, to enter into his role as the Redeemer in some formal public sense. In fact, in the, the book of Isaiah, it's the longest of the prophets, and there's a long section within the book, chapter 42 through the end of chapter 53. In those chapters, it describes the servant of the Lord. And the servant of the Lord is a suffering servant who will die for the sins of the people. And there are four servant songs that intersperse this section of Isaiah. And the first one starts in chapter 42 of Isaiah. It opens up with the first servant song. And here's what God says in just the first verse of Isaiah 42. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Now, that's the first of the four servant songs. And Isaiah was promising that the Redeemer would come. And he would come as, first of all, a suffering Messiah, a suffering servant who would stand for the people of God and make atonement for them. As you read through that section, you come to the, the climax of it in chapter 53 of Isaiah, that great picture of the Messiah as the one who dies for the iniquity of the people. And what happens at his baptism is Jesus is formally entering into that role. He says, it's necessary now for me to identify myself as the one who will take the place of sinful people and die for them. And so at his baptism, Jesus entered into his role as the Redeemer. That's what the passage is about, first of all. But then you note, immediately following that, there's a confirmation from heaven. It says, verse 16, And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened. And he saw the Spirit of God descending and resting on him, like a dove. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And there are three things that happen. Like immediately when Jesus comes up out of the water first, the heavens are opened. A significant statement because that happens just a handful of times in the Bible and it's in prophetic settings. Like Ezekiel says, I saw the heavens open. And John, when he, in the book of Revelation, sees the heavens open and it's a point where God like breaks or ruptures the distance between the spiritual realm and the natural realm, and he speaks something clearly into the natural realm. Now, we're not told who this was for. In this passage, it seems to be for Jesus. Jesus is the one who is described here as hearing the voice of God, seeing the Spirit descend. In another one of the Gospels, it seems to be for John's benefit, and John describes in John chapter 1 
uh, how he saw this and heard this, and it was confirmed for him, this, in fact, is the Messiah whom I sent you to be the forerunner for. We don't know if the people who were standing around experienced any of this. It's never described in the Bible. But the wall that divides heaven and earth, a barrier that is there because of sin, is momentarily ruptured. That wall is there at the present time because of sin and because, according to Scripture, there's a war in the heavenlies. And we are unprepared for it. And so in part, it's there for our protection. But God opens this and he speaks, telling us here's an event of great significance. And then the Spirit of God descends like a dove. And in part, this is fulfillment of the passage I read, Isaiah chapter 42. God said, I will put my Spirit upon him. And that is the Holy Spirit uh, comes upon Jesus and it says rests upon him. Like Jesus is being endowed with power to carry out the ministry that he's entering into, to be the suffering servant promised by Isaiah. And then, lastly, the Father speaks. You see, there's these three things. The heavens are open, the Spirit descends, and the Father himself speaks. Incredibly rare in Scripture for God to speak in an audible voice. And when he speaks, he expresses his satisfaction and approval of what the Son has done. He acknowledges, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So when Jesus was baptized, he assumed the role of our Redeemer, and God the Father confirmed him in that, and the Spirit confirmed him in that role as the suffering servant, the Redeemer of God's people, that was predicted in the Old Testament. We sometimes refer here to the plan of salvation, and by that we mean the eternal plan of salvation, what theologians used to call the eternal counsel of redemption. And that is this plan in eternity past, before time, that seems to have been entered into between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's a plan that is referred to in many ways, this passage being one, in which something is being worked out that was long before anything existed put into motion in the eternal plan of redemption, the three persons of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, determined to carry out a certain purpose. The Father and the plan of redemption determined to save a people from sin, from among the fallen members of the human race, and God the Son, on his part, stepped forward and offered to be the Redeemer for those people chosen by the Father. And God the Holy Spirit on his part stepped forward and agreed to apply the redemption planned by the Father, purchased by the Son, to apply that to each believer. And this passage is, is very important because it's one of those places in the Bible that records a key point where that plan is being put into motion. It's almost like you enter into a conversation that has eternally been going on among the members of the Godhead, and certain things are said that only make sense if you understand this is the unfolding of God's eternal purpose. So the son steps forward at the banks of the Jordan River, and he offers himself to be the redeemer, to become the promised substitute for sinners. And the Spirit by his presence, endowing him with power, confirms that, in fact, this is the one who will 
be the Redeemer. And the Spirit of the Father himself beams with pleasure and speaks his word of approval. Now, Jesus had no sin to confess when he came to the Jordan River. But we do. And so what he did at that point was he identified with our sin. He identified with us in our sin and our lostness by being baptized by John the Baptist, who was the Elijah of the New Covenant. So that's what this passage is about. That's what it signifies. That is baptism. Jesus volunteered to be the redeemer of sinful people, and the Father accepted that and confirmed his approval of what Jesus stepped out to do. Now, we need to ask the second question, which is really the more important question for us, and that is, what does this mean for us? Like, what difference does it make? If this had never been recorded or it hadn't happened, would, it, would anything be different? What does it mean? How does it help us understand who God is, what he is like, what he intends for us as we move through our earthly journey? Now, I have to know, we can really only answer that question by understanding that what happened at the Jordan River was fulfilled. Jesus' intention by offering himself to be the suffering servant was what he went on and he did. He, he carried it out. He entered into his work as the Messiah that day, but then he taught us the unparalleled truths, and he lived a sinless life for us, kept the law in our place. He carried our sins to the cross. He became our substitute there when he died. He rose from the dead in order to save us. The Spirit on his part uh, applies that to the heart of believers. So this eternal plan that was formally inaugurated at the Jordan River, though it had been prepared for throughout time, was fulfilled in the person of Christ. And with that in mind, I want to note three things that we have because of that, three confidences, three certainties that we have. Take your Bible and turn to Romans chapter nine, eight. Romans chapter 8. I want to use one passage to bring out these three things, three facts that are stated in Romans chapter 8. Uh, towards the end of the chapter, that tell us what is true because the Son of God undertook to be our Redeemer at the Jordan River. Romans chapter 8, and the first pair of verses I want to look at is verses 29 and 30. Verses 29 and 30, Romans chapter 8. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Well, that's a great statement. And because of his baptism, Jesus accepted and was confirmed in this role, we possess certain things. Here's the first one. Because Jesus took on the role of our Redeemer, first thing we know is that God is working inside of us to shape our wounded souls to reflect his Son. Now, I want you to note in the verses that I read, there's this unbroken chain of things that are true. He starts in verse 29 by saying, 
those whom he foreknew. And the word there, foreknew, means not simply to know in advance something that was going to happen, but to determine it. To determine something. Because of what God determined he would do, then he unfolds a whole chain of things that follow in due course. First of all, predestined in eternity past to be conformed to the character of Jesus Christ. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined to become like Jesus in character. That happened in eternity past. That was God's purpose. And then it says, those whom he predestined, he called. That means in time, he effectively called you, if you are a believer, to himself through the word of God, the gospel. He called you to himself to trust in Christ. And those whom he called here in time, he also justified. That is, he declared you not guilty of sin. And then it says, those he justified, he also glorified, which points forward to eternity future in which you are in the presence of God rejoicing. You see this unbroken chain from eternity past to eternity future in which God's purposes are carried out for these individuals. I want you to focus on these words in verse 42. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's a key point. You see, we all struggle with things in life. We, we struggle with relationships that falter and fail. We find ourselves at times as we move through life unhappy with our jobs, with our marriages, with our family, with our neighborhood, unhappy with ourselves. We might struggle as we go through lives with different debilitating things like depression or anxiety or worry or anger. We struggle with these things that we seem to feel like we can't get out of. And what God tells us here in this passage is that he is relentlessly engaged in conforming you to the character of his beloved son. And so what we should do is we should continue to struggle. Struggle is not a sign of failure. Failure is found when one stops struggling and gives up. Struggle itself indicates that a person has a desire for better things. And so what God says is struggle on. Keep struggling against whatever these things are, relationships that falter, difficult things going on in your lives, uh, certain emotions that you feel you can't control control, and no matter what you feel, you can know what God is doing from his side. God is relentlessly, actively seeking to conform you to the character of Christ, and he will do whatever it takes to bring you to that point. God is working inside of your soul, wounded however it might be, to shape you to reflect his son. That's the first thing that's true, because Jesus undertook to be our redeemer. He was carrying out an eternal plan that relates to you if you're a believer. Here's the second verse. Just look forward a few verses. Verses 31 and 32, Romans chapter 8. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely, graciously give us all things? Now, here's the second thing we know. The second thing we know is that because Jesus became our Redeemer, we know that God is dedicated to do what is, what is in our best interests. God is unwaveringly dedicated to do only what is in our eternal best interest. 
Now, this starts with this question, what should we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And the real question is that that does have a condition there, if God is for us. How can we know if God is for us? How can we be certain that God is for us? Because it is true, if he is for us, who could be against us? All you have is the creator and everything he's created. Well, the answer is in the 32nd verse. This is the proof that God is for us. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Imagine the worst thing that could happen. The worst thing that could happen in your life, depending on what age you are, what stage you are in life, it may be loss of job, it may be loss of uh, home, of a place to live, it may be a loss, a loss of your wife or your husband, maybe the loss of a child. Of course, people who study these things say that the loss of a child is under most circumstances the worst thing that a person could imagine happening in life. But whatever it is for you, what is the worst imaginable thing? And I don't say this lightly because I've buried some of your children here. But I want you to take whatever it is, the worst imaginable thing, and I want you to hold it up next to this verse. And here's what the verse says. If God is for us, who can be against us? It's a statement with a condition. God has already proven that he is for us. The supreme proof that God is for us is at the cross. At the cross, God removed all doubt of his intention towards every person who belongs to him. The cross is his iron-clad, undeniable, unchangeable truth that he has good intentions toward you. So here's what that means. Listen carefully. God has forever proven his love and his commitment to you at the cross. And what that means is that there is no victory that you could ever experience in life that would make that proof any greater. There's no blessing that you can conceive of receiving in life. Job, home, wife, child, nothing. That can make his intention to act in your best interests any stronger. Because he's already given a supreme proof that that is his intention. Nothing could make it stronger. And the other side is true as well. There is no tragedy, on the other hand, that you could ever experience in life. There's no loss that you could face. Job, home, wife, husband, child, there's nothing you could experience that would make that proof any weaker. Nothing can detract from the fact that God has proven that he is eternally for you. The proof of his intention is at the cross. And that's what we have because the plan conceived in eternity was set in motion when the Son of God stepped forward on the banks of the Jordan River and told John the Baptist, now it is time for me to enter into the eternal role given to me by the Father and that I step forward voluntarily to receive. And that's why we call him, or Peter calls him, the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. And then there's one more word we want to look at this morning because Jesus 
became our Redeemer because he entered that role formally at the Jordan River when he was baptized. And God the Father owned him there and spoke his appreciation of him. We know that God is eternally devoted to us. Chapter Romans chapter 8 ends with a climax of incredible, important, the last two verses. Look at that with me. Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39. Paul writes, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now what an incredible statement that is. It covers everything that can be conceived. He, he says uh, anything that could potentially speak against God's commitment to you, Christian person, he, he takes, first of all, neither death nor life. That's a state of existence for which humans, there's only two, death or life. And he says that that couldn't separate us from the love of God that is in Christ. He, he says angels nor rulers that's referring to spiritual powers, both those that are for us and those against us. Angels are helpful. He uses the word rulers here to describe those demonic powers that are hostile to us. Nothing could separate us, not even any spiritual power. Nor things present, nor things to come. That is, whatever we would face in the present or the future, no time could separate us. And he has no powers. That refers to governmental authorities. Governmental authority can make your life miserable or it can do much to make your life easier. But either way, it can do nothing in terms of your relationship with God and God's devotion to you in your best interests. None of these things could separate us from the eternal love of God that was planned in eternity past, carried out in time and applied to the life of each Christian by the sovereign work of the Spirit of God. Nothing could separate us. From him. And then he adds these words in case he left something out, nor anything else that is in all creation. Nor anything else in all creation. All creation is everything but God. There's only God and the creation. God has already said that he is for us, and the proof is he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. And in creation, it includes not only the things that he spoke of, space and time and so forth, but it includes you. He says nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord because God has already said that his intention and his power is exerted towards conforming you, if you are a believer, conforming you to the character of Jesus Christ. And because Jesus stepped out to be our Redeemer, that's what we have. Because he stepped out on the banks of the Jordan River and he offered himself for baptism, something he didn't need, but something he took on in order to assume a role given to him by the Father, the role of the Messiah, the role of the Redeemer, the suffering servant promised by Isaiah. We have all of these things. And when we think about those things, if we stop and contemplate them, we ought to be lost in wonder and love and praise because everything that we possess in life, all our safety and our certainty and our delight for all eternity, it flows out of the obedience 
of the one who offered himself there at the Jordan River. And that's why this passage is so important. It reflects in time the inauguration of God's eternal purpose to save a people for his name. And there Jesus freely, voluntarily offered himself to become our redeemer. And the Spirit gave his approval by giving him the power to carry out the work he had entered into. And the Father himself spoke from heaven and said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Let's pray. Again, Father, we thank you that you are the God who speaks these things to us, and we desire that we would understand and enter into them more, but I pray that you would allow us to be moved to the depths of our being with this understanding of who you are and what you have done, and that we have all of these blessings, this safety and security, this knowledge of your eternal devotion, this certainty that whatever comes into our lives, it is not something that has escaped your notice, but is your tool to shape us. We have all of this because of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you and praise you for that. In Jesus' name.